Hello, my name's Justin McClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about a hugely prolific director in the early days of cinema that nobody knows about. Yeah, Robert Flory is his name, and when you go on Letterboxd, his director's profile, his most popular movie is The Coconuts, which is one of the less popular Marx Brothers movies. Yes. So this and, is who, who we're dealing with. And The Coconuts was the first appearance of the Marx Brothers in a talkie picture, right? Right. And when you talk about how early sound films are really static mm-hmm. and move very slowly and, and are technically primitive... You're talking about the coconuts. Yes. However, I became interested in Robert Flory when I watched Murders in the Rue Morgue from 1932, a Bela Lugosi universal horror film. It's very visually striking, very transgressive for its time. And then I looked up the director and saw he had also made a very well-known avant-garde short film called The Life and Death of 9413, a Hollywood extra. And he'd made The Coconuts, and he'd made all these pre-code movies. And wait a minute, he's also an assistant director to Charlie Chaplin and Eric Von Stroheim. You must have told me about him, did you? Or did yeah. I come to him independently some other way? Because I learned that he was a cinephile and that he had written books about cinema while he was in early Hollywood. And even when he retired afterward, he continued to write like biographies of Chaplin. And speaking of Chaplin, he also was the, what was his credit? He on was Monsieur Verdoux? Associate director mm-hmm. of Monsieur Verdoux. But we are mentioning all these credits and there's no big, solid gold classic mm-hmm. that people associate him with. There almost was. Because he was going to direct Frankenstein. With Bela Lugosi as the monster. Mm -hmm. But uh, the two of them didn't really get along with the project. Uh, In fact, Robert Flory wrote the screenplay for Frankenstein. And most specifically, the continuity for Frankenstein, which is the shot list. So even before they started shooting, every shot would be planned out. Yeah. And that was given to James Whale and two other writers. And they changed stuff, but supposedly not that much. And instead of making Frankenstein, they went and made Murders in the Rue Morgue. Frankenstein was a massive hit. Murders in the Rue Morgue, not so much. Who knows what might have happened in film history had they stayed on that film. I think that like reading a shot-by-shot breakdown of of how it would have been different, something that would have really hurt Flory's version is that he never had any intention of making the monster sympathetic. Mm. That was never part of his vision for the Frankenstein movie. And I do think that that's what people react to. Yeah, and I do think, on balance, Frankenstein is the better film than Murders in the Rue Morgue is because of that, because of Boris Karloff's subtle textured performance as the monster but those expressionist sets the bolts in the frankenstein's neck that was all robert flory's doing Mm -hmm. he shot a test with bella lugosi doing one of the scenes of the movie on these expressionist sets and it actually wowed the brass at universal but when james whale came in being a top shelf broadway director did he request frankenstein i believe he did because someone really wanted to do frankenstein and that's the reason that robert flory and they didn't inform him right away was taken off the project. And Bela Lugosi didn't want to play the monster anyway. He thought it was beneath his dignity. Mm -hmm. So in Murders of the Rue Morgue, he plays Dr. Miracle. It's in, you know, mid-19th century Paris, and uh, he's this uh, freak show carnival barker slash scientist who has uh, a gorilla, a talking gorilla. It's like he he claims he can talk to the gorilla mm-hmm. and translate what it's saying. But in his off hours, he's sort of a proto-Darwinist. He believes that, uh, you know, long before Darwin, he believes of the link between apes and men. And to try to prove this, he abducts women and... Uh, <laughs> Takes the blood out of the gorilla and injects it in the women, which kills them. He also puts the women on a horrifying expressionist cross where... In his giant laboratory, all you hear are screams. Okay, now, Murders in the Rue Morgue was originally 80 minutes, and it was cut to 61 minutes for its release version. So a lot of very gruesome stuff was cut out. But in its form right now, it's still, like, absolutely demonic. (laughs) Yes, it is. It just feels evil. Like, if you compare it to something like Frankenstein, they are pulls apart at how frightening uh, Murders of the Rue Morgue is still 
to this day. You know, that scene when Lugosi is in his lair and that woman, a, a streetwalker, mm-hmm. it is implied, is like, yeah, chained to this cabinet of Dr. Caligari-like torture device. And, and he's yelling at her. And then she dies and, you know, they dispose of the body. It's hideous. And like, there's uh, I, like you, there's no score. All yeah. you hear are sc- her screams throughout the entire scene. This is the time in the talkie era of Hollywood where there wasn't musical soundtracks uh, mm-hmm. either. So it even makes it feel that much more like unsettling. And the whole movie looks like it was shot in an inkwell. It's <laughs> as black and white a movie as you've ever seen. Very high contrast. The Paris that it creates, obviously it's shot on sets, but there are beautiful matte paintings and, uh, you know, very distorted set design. He's very influenced by Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. The Paris in the movie is this like very kind of creepy place you know there's the scene where they're fishing you know the women's corpses out of the river basically and there's a scene set under a bridge where the homeless people of paris are there or there's a scene in the mortuary where you know it's it's very dark and looks very like crumbling and rat infested watching the film now it's a little bit sobering when you compare it to the thing that kind of overshadowed it frankenstein because frankenstein was directed by james whale who had never made a film before, so it's very stage-bound. He took every the camera back, and he just captured the scene. And there's, like, a ricketiness that, like, mm. most new people, when they come to Frankenstein, they kind of pull back away from. It's very it's a primitive-seeming movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And Murder's the Rumor, beyond the technical things, like, you know, there's no music, and some of the dialogue's a little bit hard to make out, is a very fluid motion picture. Mm. And it's kind of expressionist style takes it away from like, oh, this feels, you know, out of time and puts it in a whole other category. Yeah, I mean, in addition to all the heavy shadow and everything, mm. there it has a scene like, do you remember the scene where there's a, a woman on a swing? Yes. And the camera is in the swing with her? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a very imaginative thing for a 1932 film. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though that William Wellman also did it in Wings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the lack of success to Murders of the Rue Morgue can be probably attributed to the fact that there's no central monster to grasp onto. That's the reason it hasn't continued since it came out. I mean, there's a gorilla. Great gorilla suit. Every time they cut to a close-up of a real monkey for some reason, I was like, ugh, no thank that you. Was, that was a bad idea. Yeah, just just give me the, the big old fake face of the gorilla. Yeah, and because Robert Flory has never really been recognized as a mm-hmm. great director, it's like the Black Cat, some people know the Black Cat because of the Ulmer connection and because it's Karloff and Lugosi. Mm-hmm. But really, only people who really love the Universal Horror movies know Murders in the Room more. And usually it's dismissed because it's not one that has one of the famous monsters yeah, in it. Yeah, it doesn't have a Frankenstein or a Dracula. So Murders of the Rue Morgue, it came early in uh, Robert Flory's career, but he had actually been in Hollywood for a long time. He came from France as a cinephile. He was writing for a um, cinema-based magazine. That's right. And he came to Hollywood and he struck up acquaintances with people like Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford, Rudolph Valentino. He worked as a publicist in Hollywood. And, you know, with these connections, he made an experimental film for a budget of $97. Yeah, he did it, I think, like in his apartment uh, up against a black cloth most of the time. And it was credited as being co-directed by one Slavko Vorkovic, but everyone pretty much agrees that it was all Flory's show. Mm-hmm. And it's the life and death of 9413, a Hollywood extra in 1928. And For an experimental film, it got a huge push. It was in over 700 theaters. Douglas Fairbanks was involved in getting the word out. Charlie Chaplin, uh, Joseph Skank, they were early supporters of it. Even though that the actual complete version of the film is unavailable anywhere, the version you watch online is actually missing five minutes of the picture. Oh, interesting. Yeah, there's a 13-minute version out there. Mm. And uh, it's a very interesting film. Um, I mean, it's an avant-garde short. That's what it is, with a very easy-to-discern narrative to it. Yeah, and like, it's not saying much beyond Hollywood, what a fickle place. Mm -hmm. Ah, there's a guy running up the stairs, and then Mm -hmm. there's a cut, and oh, he's running up the stairs again, and a cut, and he's running up the stairs again. He's never going to get anywhere. Yeah, and he's got, there are big words that come on screen like success, (laughs) dreams, and there are 
sort of like <laughs> handcrafted sets to look like a giant cityscape, sort of like a bargain basement metropolis where yeah. it's like, you know, gigantic skyscrapers rendered out of cardboard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, Dutch angle close ups and yeah, rapid editing. Just black and like a light in someone's face, hands up in the air and waving. Also like man with the movie camera and its editing patterns and stuff like that. This short became, you know, a, a success. To, a cause celebre. A cause celebre. And he was signed to Paramount, where he made films such as The Coconuts with the Marx Brothers. Well, it should be pointed out that Robert Flory had directed three feature films before he made that short. Mm-hmm. But there, people are like, eh, yeah, they were fine. He was figuring it out. We both read a book this week called Robert Flory, The French Expressionist by Brian Taves. Mm-hmm. Taves? Brian Taves? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. And it is the book you want about a director because yeah. it is insanely detailed. Oh, and yeah. Brian Taves was in contact with Robert Flory uh, while he was writing the book. So you also get his personal <laughs> perspective on things. We were talking about this book like every movie and this guy made 50 movies every movie gets a detailed analysis there's a detailed rundowns on the themes the motifs yeah the visual style and, and it is incredibly annotated like every uh, resource you can find at the back of the book and i mean i'm glad that he wrote this book for us only <laughs> yes. because we're the only people who would ever read so it. i got it out of the library the first time i went to york two years ago and I went to get it from the library again this week and I opened it up and my old bookmark fell out. (laughs) (laughs) So if you look in the system, it's probably like Justin DeClue and then a few years later, Justin DeClue. (laughs) And I think what's fascinating about him is that not only was he an expressionist, but he worked so much. Mm -hmm. Like he would make three, four, five films a year. Mm -hmm. Most of them B-movies, so under 60 minutes. So this is both the tragedy and the thing that makes his career really interesting. Mm -hmm. He was considered the best B director working in Hollywood studios. So not like Edgar G. Elmer, who worked in Poverty Poverty Row. Row, Yeah, Uh, Robert Flory actually disdained Poverty Row, and he looked down on having to work there and the people that had to work there. Yeah, so he worked in the B division of Paramount, Warner Brothers, and he was considered so good at making these movies that the studio executives were like, Great, make another one. Like, the reason he made The Coconuts is because he was on the ground floor of sound pictures. Do you know that? I never knew this before. When sound was first introduced, because it was recorded straight as it was being filmed, they would shoot it with three cameras. Mm -hmm. So they got the one soundtrack, and they would have to do it on one soundstage. And Robert Flory made a bunch of shorts, uh, including Edward G. Robinson's first picture. The book about Robert Flory gave me some new insight into The Coconuts, which I'd always regarded as a bit of a slog. But it talks about how... <laughs> they couldn't capture the Marx Brothers in the frame. Yeah, because they could barely move the camera because of how cumbersome the sound equipment was. And the Marx Brothers were used to like being on stage, running around, improvising. And they're like, no, no, sit, sit there and do your routines. <laughs> they're like, we can't pan because the camera is in a soundproof booth. <laughs> so there are scenes in the coconuts where they just like walk off screen. And like, <laughs> yeah. there are a lot of scenes where you can sort of barely hear them because they're not talking into the mic. Mm. But the book does give some insight into like what Robert Flory tried to do with it. You know, Robert Flory talked about, hey, this is set in Florida. Can we maybe just send a second unit down to Florida and, sh- and open it up a little, shoot some airy shots? And the executive's like, uh, no, why would you do that? So it's like, okay, fine, I'm shooting a stage play. But he does things like like the opening shot of the movie where it's like you see a woman framed through her parasail. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. parasol, it uh, looks like a wagon wheel. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, the opening credits played uh, like photo negative footage of, mm. of women dancing. Or it's an early movie to have an overhead shot of bathing beauties dancing. Before Busby Berkeley did it. Yes. <laughs> but no one would realize that when you would watch the coconuts, you would assume that it came afterwards because you'd be like, why does anybody mention that? Yeah. And also when you watch the coconuts, you're not paying attention to that. You're like, okay, give me the Marx Brothers. I just want to see the Marx Brothers. <laughs> and Robert Flory on sets like, I hate the Marx Brothers. I'd rather shoot anything but them. It's impossible so <laughs> to get them on the set at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> and like they had to go do their show every night and jump on a plane so they wouldn't even stay the entire time. <laughs> Insane. <laughs> what a nightmare. But the film came out was a massive hit. And you think, oh, Robert Flory can now move on to comedies. I mean, the thing that Robert Flory was really passionate about, other than cinema, was romantic 
kind of films. Mm-hmm. And it's a shame that he, like, they didn't give him that many opportunities to do it. Yeah, he did a few. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I saw a pretty good, like, pre-code drama of his called X-Lady. It's from 1933, and it has Betty Davis, and it's about a couple who are living together out of wedlock. <gasps> I know, horrifying, huh? And they decide, eventually, reluctantly, to get married. And of course, once they get married, they immediately start, have, start having affairs with other people. Can you put that on screen? Oh, it's one of those pre-code films. (laughs) That's right. You know, even that movie, though, that was a film that the brass called him and he had to replace a director and come down the set the next day to start shooting. He didn't even know what kind of movie it was. I mean, he's a perfect example of the studio director who was just on contract and he had no choice what he was going to do. And he would resist. He would try to resist things, but they were just like, no, you do this or you take a suspension. They would give him a day to plan before he'd have to start shooting the next day. Mm -hmm. That's what kind of career that he had. And, you know, it's good that he rarely said no because he got to make a lot of movies, but he also was in a position that he had to deliver a film that was just releasable instead of trying to bring his own voice to the final product. What was amazing to me watching, you know, five or six of his movies this week was how consistent the visual style is in them. So, as I said, extremely influenced by German expressionism. So a lot of his movies have a lot of close-ups with Dutch angles. They have rapid-fire montages, a lot of heavy shadows and unusual shadows. There will be scenes where, like, Two people will be having a conversation and there will be shadow on their face except their eyes. Well, we both watched the preview murder mystery, which is a film studio murder plot. And the script itself is meh. Like somebody wrote it. They made it. But like Robert Flory is like trying to give it his all, like capturing a police captain talking to his men. And it's just a light on him. And as he walks, the light follows him. And you just see the shadows of the men in front of him. There are so many scenes in his movies of somebody being lit from underneath, Mm -hmm. like somebody telling a spooky story at a campfire. The preview murder mystery, the story, and it's, it's kind of an interesting film if you're a cinephile. It's set at a studio where Uh, they're going to do a remake of a film by a a famous silent star who died early. So a Lon Chaney type. And people start getting picked off that are in the movie. Hmm, I wonder if this Lon Chaney type who probably died has something to do with it. (laughs) (laughs) But the movie's 60 minutes long. It's got a vast cast of characters, all with their own motivations. And Flory really keeps it going. Like, it's it's lightning-paced. I feel that one of the problems with his films is because there's so many characters. It feels like all these actors were under contract, and the studio was like, well, we gotta keep them working. We can't just keep them on the lot or suspended all this time. So throw them in Flory's picture. They can have, like, a little role. Because, like, as well as the other picture we watched, Hollywood Boulevard, you're like, why are there so many characters? Hollywood Boulevard from 1936 is also sort of an interesting movie, although I didn't like it as much as the preview murder mystery it was sort of conceived as a grand hotel style movie for faded silent stars i don't know who any of them are (laughs) i don't know either so you see the opening credits and it's all these names francis x bushman herbert rawlinson may marsh and when robert flory talked about hollywood boulevard he's like every scene there'll be a new star that will like reignite the viewer's imaginations of oh yes i remember them but now taken I almost a hundred years away from that. It's like I I don't a lot of a lot of characters in this <laughs> yeah. movie. Oh my god! I mean, apparently they cut out Harold Lloyd. Uh, yeah, the one person we would have recognized. I know, too bad. <laughs> but anyway, the story is about a faded silent star who, to reignite his career, starts writing salacious memoirs about his life. And uh, though they become popular, they hurt everyone close to him, including his daughter, who is having a relationship with a wisecracking young screenwriter, and Ooh. all that stuff. You know, for the first half of this 60 minute movie I was I was into it me too and then after that as it got more and more into this plot and as I learned from the book the movie would have been much better because something like 15 or 20 minutes were cut out of it that were like on location stuff in Hollywood establishing shots Flory wanted it to be like a time capsule of Hollywood at the time and unfortunately directors weren't even allowed in the editing room at the time so they just took it to the editing room and they were like what's with all this all this stuff of you know exteriors cut it did you hear a story that when big 
big European directors would come down to Hollywood to start making American films like um, Max Ophel's, uh, R- Flory would often be like their guide. Mm. But instead of taking them to all the hot spots, he'd be like, ah, see this dirt road? That's where they started making movies in the silent area. <laughs> and the directors would be like, what? No, I don't care. Like even then, when Robert Flory was making films in the 30s, he was nostalgic about like the start of Hollywood. I think it's interesting that certain recurring themes actually come up in his movies, even though he was just a like studio hand who had to do whatever he wanted. I think there is this bittersweet view of Hollywood that occurs in several of the movies that I watched this week. This I you know, like how Hollywood is glorious, but it's also incredibly fickle. You're in today, you're out tomorrow. Which is sobering when you consider that the films at the time that they came out we associate a lot of those pictures with, oh, Hollywood was just starting. Everybody was getting their legs. And it's like, no, people were already old news by this time because years and years had passed. I mean, like Robert Flory tried to give John Gilbert a shot after the talkies came along. John Gilbert being one of the most famous big silent actors who didn't have the right voice, everybody Mm -hmm. said. But even then, that shows the limitations of what Flory could do because the studio brass was like, eh, no, we don't want John Gilbert. And Flory did not have enough of a leg to stand on to be able to push it through. Flory's career is so frustrating because he would be the company man expecting a promotion to do something else and then they wouldn't give it to him, so he'd get frustrated and go to a different studio where he would have to start as the company man again until they wouldn't give him something else, and then he would quit and go. He worked at every studio, Mm -hmm. and he never got any of the big pictures. You know, while it's a shame that he didn't have that masterpiece to his credit, he still made a lot of really interesting movies. The ones that are probably best known today are the thrillers, Mm -hmm. I mean, aside from the Marx Brothers movie. So there's The Beast with Five Fingers with Peter Lorre, which I watched this week and it's considered one of his uh, better movies. I was a little disappointed by it, but it's got good stuff in it. And the problem with it, I think, is the script. Which Flory usually didn't have that much to do with. I mean, even some films where he had complete script control, they're still a little bit middling because that's what his sensibilities kind of played into. He was he thought the film was a visual medium. Mm-hmm. He was very invested in the visual side of it. Like you see his short, The Life and Death of a Hollywood Extra, and you just want all the films to look like that. And the Mm -hmm. closest he ever got was Murders in the Rue Morgue. Mm -hmm. And every other one is like Ulmer, right? You're like, you're looking for those tastes, but oftentimes the content of them is just not there. Mm -hmm. But the visual style is very consistent in them. So, Mm -hmm. you know, something like Beast with Five Fingers, the plot of it is that there's this famed pianist who has had paralysis on one side of his body, so only one hand works, and he puts all of his power into that one hand, and he invites all of his friends and acquaintances over to his spooky mansion one night for a reading of his will. And what do you think happens? He dies. Mm-hmm. And uh, what what survives, or at least what we think survives, wink, wink, is his disembodied hand, which goes around killing people. And the studio cut out huge chunks of hallucinatory footage in this film as well. Oh my god, they should have cut out some of the plot in the middle, It's I like, think. oh, he was in the worst place, which is, he wasn't in Poverty Row, where people like Ulmer could do whatever the hell they wanted. He was at a studio where he delivered mm-hmm. on time, on money, but then the brass would go, let's cut off all the sharp edges of this, mm-hmm. and just put it out to be easily consumed, and most of the time, forgotten. He did like a double nurses film mm-hmm. with a registered nurse and bedside. He did one about like auctioneers called The Big Fraud. One of his best-known movies is Daughter of Shanghai, which was set in San Francisco Chinatown and starred Anna Mae Wong. Uh, it's, I think, one of his only movies that's been preserved by the Library of Congress. Not because of him, but because of the fact that it starred Mm -hmm. an Asian actress in the main role. And it's fine. Mm -hmm. Uh, The problem is, for a film starring Anna Mae Wong, she's not very proactive in it, Mm -hmm. and she has to be saved by the Caucasians at every turn. Uh, Later in his career, he made Tarzan and the Mermaids with Johnny Weissmuller. (laughs) And uh, also a very popular at the time war movie called God is My Co-Pilot, which has always just stuck out to me as having a ridiculous title. (laughs) Yeah, very God is My Co-Pilot. I mean, like, during the Second World War, one of his biggest productions and his only color film, The Desert Song, from uh, 1943, was one that he actually had a lot of creative control with. He even, like, worked month in pre-production, but... (laughs) 
in post, they took it away from him and added musical numbers mm-hmm. that he hadn't planned on being in the film. Mm-hmm. Like, this guy could not win <laughs> because yeah. he's working for a studio. And at the end of the day, the bosses are going to want to impose some form of ego and control over the final product. Yeah, I mean, I know that he was fighting for a lot of his career and only kind of midway through his career could he get stuff that wasn't shot in the studio. Mm-hmm. His sensibility is sort of interesting because he likes expressionist sets, but he also wanted to get some docu-realist stuff in there too. Yeah, especially near the end of his career mm-hmm. with stuff like uh, the crime pictures he was making, mm-hmm. King of the Gamblers, or mm-hmm. even just like an action picture like King of Alcatraz, which is a very misleading title because it's Die Hard on a Boat, uh, I guess Under Siege, if you will, yes. about two uh, bumbling men in a love triangle with a woman, and suddenly bad guys take over the boat and they have to fight them off. And like all of Flory's films, it's mostly like a hundred characters up until things get wrapped up in the last five minutes. <laughs> Another one that I watched this week that I really liked was The Face Behind the Mask from um, the early 40s with Peter Lorre. Peter Lorre plays a wide-eyed immigrant who comes to America, very excited to build a new life, but his face gets horribly burned the first day that he's here. And uh, in hopes of getting plastic surgery, he turns to a life of crime. But he also falls in love with a kindly blind woman. Just like Robert Flory himself, having to do crime to be able to pay the bills. And, you know, talking about themes that miraculously occur in these movies. I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into it. Maybe you just get themes if you get assigned Mm. 50 movies. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But several of the movies I saw this week are interested in the idea of, like, people hiding behind masks and uh you know. I, I also think that when flory would make something that was successful the studio would just give him the closest mm. approximation mm. so themes would also mm. bubble to the surface mm. i mean flory reading this uh biography on him was constantly writing stuff for himself that he wanted to make he really would love to do historical dramas he wanted to do a biopic on napoleon and the studio just would not give it to him they'd be like oh but you're good at doing these crime films why don't you make more of these and he's like all right fine one day i'll get my shot and that shot never really came but he did end up in television like a lot of the uh, b-movie directors did and it, reading about that part it seems that he was much more satisfied um, with the projects that he was doing and he worked on so much stuff uh, alfred Hitchcock presents twilight zone a thriller with boris karloff is yeah. one of his best known he did do stuff like four star playhouse which was with four major actors who would each produce an episode based on like a famous text mm-hmm. and that was more to his style and he still had to shoot it really fast two and a half days for mm-hmm. 30 minutes But the problem with TV shows is that they are not preserved. So, like, no one hears about them. No one goes and checks them out. Some of them are usually up on YouTube or um, Daily Motion for some reason. But that's the stuff that is... You know, he may have been really satisfied doing it and loved the end product. Maybe it played to millions of people. But now nobody's talking about that. Nobody thinks of TV shows in terms of directors. Yeah. Either. Like some people like The Twilight Zone, mm-hmm. but they're not thinking, ah, yes, that Robert Flory episode of <laughs> no. The Twilight Zone. He didn't do anybody's favorites either. But lest it sound like he was totally unrecognized in his lifetime, he was made a knight of the French Legion of Honor. And after he retired from film and television in L.A., he was known as like the king cinephile. Kevin Brownlow, basically the god of of like documenting silent era cinema said i regarded him as the oracle of delphi as far as film history was concerned so robert flory could almost be considered one of the first who became like obsessed with hollywood film history and he was happy to share it with anybody that he met and one of the few things robert flory didn't do at the end of his career was write about himself he wrote tons of books like there's one called Hollywood Year Zero about like the history of Hollywood that he experienced firsthand. They're all published in French. Almost none of them have been translated to English, but he never talked about his own experiences on film sets because I guess he kind of diminished it in his eyes. It's interesting when you read about him, he thought that so many of his movies weren't very good. He was mm. disappointed, for example, with Peace with Five Fingers and Murders in the Rue Morgue, movies that the people who know him like the best. Uh, I actually checked um, a critical write-up on him in the 50 Years of American Cinema by director Bertrand Tavernier, and the French critic who's writing the article points out that Flory sent him a letter after the first edition being like, uh, yeah, you diminished my work a little bit too much. <laughs> which is really funny. Is so funny. he may have thought little of his work, but he didn't think that little of his work. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I hope people go and discover his films, but I can understand 
it can be frustrating. Well, you'll see a picture and be like, eh, that was all right. And it's difficult to like propel you to find more when there's so much to watch. And a lot of the, his movies are available in shitty, crappy versions. And probably for the first time, I've noticed that the copies I could find were not official ones because they were scanned from a print, probably by a fan and duped to VHS because the real ends are in the picture. And I saw that on multiple of his films that I watched, which means that they're just not being cataloged and they're not being preserved. Yeah, the version of Hollywood Boulevard that I think was a 16 millimeter print yeah. because it has a long break in the middle. <laughs> yeah, and the version we watched was probably a fan version yeah. because a studio would never put it on VHS like that. Too bad. <laughs> yep. Well, I mean, I hope people go check out Murders of the Room Org and like us, they go exploring to look for more of yeah, that. Yeah, and Robert Flory ignites your ma- imagination yep. in some way. So Justin, do we have any letters this week? We do. And as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And... This letter is from, I'm sorry, I'm going to butcher your name, Diana Vertar. And she goes, hey guys, shout out from Mallorca. First off, just wanted to express my endless gratitude for your creation and curation of this podcast. Ah, thank you. It's totally made my summer. I just discovered it a few weeks back. And it's also, weirdly enough, don't laugh, made me get back into yoga. I put on one of your episodes and just breathe through my practice. Oh, and I also listen to you every morning biking to work. I checked where uh, Mallorca is, and it's like a Spanish isle somewhere. <laughs> so yeah. I just imagine her like listening to it in this like beautiful place, and our kind of whiny voices coming through your phones. Well, when we do our European tour, we'll have to book a date in Mallorca. <laughs> yeah, and it just made me think, not in a million years would I think someone would relax to it <laughs> and be able to do kind of like yoga. <laughs> I wish there was somebody who could inspire me to exercise. <laughs> yeah. While I am a woman, I certainly don't think you haven't done justice to female artists. Plus, I'm sure you got some great ones in store for us in future episodes. I personally would love to hear about Elizabeth Taylor and the mammoth that was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Elizabeth Taylor would be a lot of fun yeah, to do because yeah. she has a lot of like good dirt and great movies to talk about. Yeah. Either way, I want to finish this with a question for you. Have you ever had an experience of doing a 360 on a movie or director? disliking or hating it on first viewing or just resisting avoiding something someone for years and then sort of rediscovering and absolutely loving it later on keep cranking those episodes out and feel free to make them even longer sunny and warm greetings from alorca diana uh as far as making them longer a lot of people always ask that question this is like all we got guys yeah, <laughs> like like we don't time it or anything like that sometimes i'll glance the clock to like force us to keep talking a little bit longer but uh-huh. yeah 25 minutes is that is like the perfect time for me and Will to usually talk about one single subject. And as far as doing 360s on directors or actors or even movies. Well, I remember when I was 10 years old, maybe 11, watching Werner Herzog's Nosferatu for the first time, having no context for who Herzog was, thinking it was just a a fun horror movie and being (laughs) very confused about it. (laughs) And, oh, and being very scornful. I thought that you you thought it was a fun horror movie while you were watching no, it. No. Just you were expecting those thrills. It was a very depressing birthday party. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I'm trying to think of like stuff I've done 360s on. Usually it's big popular movies. Wait, a, a 180, frankly. Because yeah. it's, some, it's something that you liked and then didn't like, not that you came back around to <laughs> did, liking. Did not, yeah. Just so we're clear on the mathematics of this. <laughs> yeah, people are writing letters right now. I just got to think, okay, um, what's that snowboarding game called for N64? 1080 oh, uh, something? Yeah, Tony Hawk's. Uh, oh, no, <laughs> no, no. It's, oh, no, that's you, a different one. That's Pro Skater. I know the one you're talking you're, about, Did it come packaged with N64 games? Because everybody, everybody knows. It, yeah. It's like um, Snow Jump 1080 or something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, probably like Pulp Fiction is something that I kind of, it was all right, but it wasn't what I wanted. And watching it recently, and I'll get back into that later, it uh, something that I actually really enjoyed. Definitely Life is Beautiful. I love it now. Oh. <laughs> the Robert Benigni film. Oh, yeah. That was one that I loved oh, as a kid. I got something. Godzilla films. I did not like them when I was a kid. I thought they were boring. Not enough Godzilla, huh? Yeah. And that's because... A friend of mine gave me King Kong versus Godzilla as the first one to watch. I have a very clear memory of being in a video store as a kid and overhearing two kids looking at the VHS of King Kong versus Godzilla and being like, oh my God, King Kong versus Godzilla. And I remember even at that age thinking you were in for some disappointment. (laughs) (laughs) You wanted to take them aside and you're like, listen, kids, you know, something that I've done a huge 360 on is shot on video stuff because... Mm. 
when I was in my um, early 20s, it was not something that I liked. I was like, why can't it like be like the stuff I like? And now, mm, 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 well, I love it. Uh, enough time has passed that shot on video now looks like yeah, aesthetically different and interesting. And I think I can get easier into the rhythms of them and be like, oh yeah, this is slow. But as long as you keep it interesting and there's an authorial voice behind it, I can enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Do you ever have a director you get kind of tired of, like? Pedro Almodovar, I've, I feel like I've maybe lost my taste I never for. got into him. Um, as far as directors that like that I loved and went like, eh, I, it's, nah, I don't really like Doesn't you that much. Doesn't do it much. for me anymore. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think. It would have to be something like on the cutting edge that I'm like, oh yeah, I love this. I mean, like every male, white, teenage boy, Christopher Nolan, baby. Like yeah, when the, yeah. those movies are coming out, I'm like, finally, someone takes superheroes seriously. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of gone away. Yeah. Like I'm not, uh, there's no passion there anymore. Yeah. Probably all those Batman films and probably how popular it was. Mm, I got him. We did an episode on him. Terry Gilliam. Terry Gilliam. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, we did a whole episode that is basically us grappling with that concept. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and as far as like disliking movies when I watch them again, I mean, that recently happened with Kickboxer 4, The Aggressor, but usually it's the other way around. Something I didn't like and I like it now because I'm like, oh, okay, I can enjoy it for what it is as opposed to what I wanted it to be. Mm. Um, so, well, so thank you very much for that letter. And Elizabeth Taylor is definitely uh, someone I would like yeah. to talk about. So thanks, Diana. And if you'd like to send us a letter, you can do it at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And if you want more of us, because this podcast is not long enough, you got to get the Patreon episodes, man. There's a new one every week. And it's only $5 a month to listen to us talk about Pulp Fiction. And that's because the director of it, a uh, bright-eyed, very promising <laughs> talent by the name of Quentin Tarantino, has very a humble. <laughs> new movie coming out this week. So we decided to revisit the one that started it all, sort of. And it's an interesting conversation because I was just kind of lukewarm on it when I saw it in high school and probably hadn't watched it since. It's, you know, it's a fun conversation. We talk a lot about why we thought it was so popular when it came out. So again, that's uh, $5 a month, patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. I'd really appreciate it if you become a Patreon subscriber. And I always forget, we have a chat room as well that as a $5 member, you can jump in. Me and Will are there uh, every few days and we chat about stuff. You can ask us questions, ask other like-minded listener questions, book recommendations, letterbox handles. It's all on there. So, you know, become a Patreon subscriber. If you already are, get on the Discord. If you have no idea how Discord works, which is just a chat room. What are you going to (laughs) do? Yeah. Uh, maybe I'll make a post on it on the importance. Somebody of the club. knows. Yeah, people know. They figure it out. <laughs> All right. So next week we've got an exciting topic, and yes. it's exciting for a number of reasons. So we're going to be talking about writer director Albert Pune, and you may be going, "Wait, the guy who directed Cyborg and that shitty Captain America movie? Why are you talking about him?" Well, I assume if you're thinking that, this is your first episode, because I've talked about him before. And it's also because I wrote a book on the man. Yes, a 176-page book that you can, listening to this now, go on Amazon, all the Amazons, and buy your copy that you will receive at your home, and you can read about Albert Pune. And it was written fast and passionately, much like a film by Albert Pune himself. Yes, it was written in about a month because I was trying to get it out for a screening of his of a movie called Radioactive Dreams. I realized, man, books are hard to do, especially laying them out, which takes a very long time. Folks, I recommend reading this book from beginning to end because his career tells an incredible story. Yes, and that's what I was happy to hear because I actually didn't write the book chronologically because I would have gone insane if I had done that. Uh, You would have had a rough second half. (laughs) Yes, but when you read it from cover to cover, you really get the vision of a man trying his best to like make the kind of movies that he loves. And at every turn, like Robert Flory, they're just crushing him down. And he was at once an independent and kind of a factory line director. And, you know, Albert Pune is somebody who doesn't really have a lot of fans. No, he does not. Yeah, he hasn't had Defenders yet. He's been called the Edward of the 90s. And this is the book that... Bananas. (laughs) Finally, a book makes the case for him. Yes. And it's like, I read your book and Mm -hmm. then I went and watched Crazy Six. (laughs) Yes. Because I was like... Okay, I'm interested now. And, you know, Crazy Six, now that I've read your book... Makes more sense, right? It does, it does. Like, I'm I'm looking at his choices, and I'm like, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to use up all my material, but I do want people to buy the book. If you hear Albert Pune talk about the movies that he made, later on in his career, he started kind of pulling away from talking about his genre influences and was like, you know, I was mostly, uh, you know, influenced by, like, Bergman and Godard and... 
and Fellini and stuff like that. And like when I was getting into his movies a decade ago, I was like, look at this pretentiousness. Then you watch the movies and you're like, oh, yeah, okay, I understand what he was trying to do. And nobody wanted what he was delivering in some form. But one of the other reasons I kind of became obsessed with Sim is that, oh, boy, was he prolific. And he was prolific in a way that could only be uh, described as Jess Franco-like. Nobody has ever tackled that filmography before. (laughs) No. And he made those movies not because he wanted to make money, but because he loved making movies. So next week, what I recommend that we watch is Nights, which is a, a DTV Chris Christopherson, Lance Henriksen, Kathy Long, who was an actual martial artist, post-apocalyptic kung fu picture that in my review, I compared to Churhark's The Blade, (laughs) a wuxia film. And we should watch Deceit, which is the film that he made in secret on the set of Cyborg when they demanded reshoots from him. And he said, well, if you're going to force me to do reshoots, I'm going to make an entirely new film in three days. Fantastic. I'm going to watch Cyborg too. Oh yeah, Cyborg. I don't think I've seen it from end to end. Why don't you watch the director's cut of Cyborg in black and white? I'll hook you up. All right. Because one of the reasons they didn't want to use the director's cut of Cyborg is he did like a heavy, like feedback electric guitar score. <laughs> and they're like, we do not want this. And they replaced it with a MIDI like, do, 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 do. Do, do, do score. Excellent. Anyway, so uh, that's what we're going to be do, doing next work. Albert Pyun. I hope that you go on Amazon and you buy the book. I also interviewed three of his longtime collaborators. So, and most of them were like, well, we've never actually talked about this. No one's asked us. Yeah, so. it's very powerful stuff, actually. So uh, that's next week. Until then, my name is Justin McGlue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Something that we didn't talk about during the discussion of Albert Flory was one of the stranger interludes of his career, his time as associate director on Charlie Chaplin's Monsieur Verdoux in 1947. This was a very stormy collaborative partnership. Chaplin came to him and basically said, look, I'm in every scene of this movie and I got to get it done in 10 weeks. I can't do everything myself. Please help me direct the film. And I don't know why he went to Robert Flory. Like they were friends back in the day. And in fact, Robert Flory wrote a book about Chaplin in the 20s Mm -hmm. and Chaplin was impressed by Life and Death of a Hollywood Extra. So I I guess they had maintained a friendship over the years. And so Chaplin took Flory on. Maybe he thought Flory was more of a B-movie director. Who knows? But Flory was... Just frustrated by the experience as Chaplin, as Chaplin acted the way that we always hear that he acts. Well, Flory was the first kind of real director who Chaplin brought in mm-hmm. as an assistant. And later on Limelight, he worked with Robert Aldrich as his assistant. Wow, director. Robert Aldrich. Yeah, I know. And Chaplin at this point had been running his own show for a long time. So he had his own studio and he had a staff who were accustomed to all of his whims. So he could do things like, you know, he'd be shooting a scene and be like, you know what, I'm not going to shoot this scene today. I'm going to shoot this other scene. Or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm going to do this. Or, you know what? I'm leaving this out today. No more work today. And F- Robert Flory was flabbergasted at Chaplin's complete disinterest with technical matters. Yeah. It'd be like, oh, there's a boom mic and shot. And Chaplin would be like, oh, what? Who cares? Just leave it in. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Like The Chaplin didn't like heavy editing. He didn't like close-ups. He's like, no, show me from head to foot because my feet are as expressive as my face. And it's all about me. So Robert Flory said he was basically on set the entire time. He shot anything that Chaplin was not involved in, mm-hmm. but it was Chaplin's show. I mean, yeah, like the movie does not look like a Robert Flory movie. Did anybody ever make the accusation that Flory had directed the film? Well, I mean, he's... (laughs) Did you know that like Robert Flory's credit was going to appear on the same title card as Chaplin's like brother-in-law that he hated? Yeah, in fact, it it still did. And that's an amazing story (laughs) because they're both credited as associate director. Flory is actually the associate director on the film, but Wheeler Dryden was Chaplin's half-brother that his mom had had out of wedlock long before. And basically, Wheeler Dryden showed up in Hollywood one day and threw himself at Chaplin's mercy. And Chaplin tortured him. him. It was literally like Luke Perry in that episode of The Simpsons with Krusty. (laughs) Yeah. What do you want me to do, Krusty? Yeah, he was just evil to his half-brother. He would like force him to like sweep up, would like kick him in the butt. Is there like a Wheeler... Dryden. Is there a biography? Well, there should be if there isn't. Because that would be really interesting. (laughs) Or even like a biopic where like Chaplin is a... Like, you know, the girl kind of Hitchcock biopic. I mean, I know that Flory's contributions to the movie included that he, Flory didn't get the movie. He didn't like the political stuff. He didn't like the sort of uh, dark sense of humor, but he got the sense from Chaplin that Chaplin was tired of being funny at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, So he had to talk Chaplin out of having some more murders in the movie. (laughs) And apparently it was Flory's idea to cut up 
the final speech into several different scenes. So like Verdu in the movie gives a speech at the courtroom and then he talks to a reporter and then he talks to a priest in his cell. And that was all going to be one speech. Basically. I think Flory had the right idea with yeah. that. <laughs> and also a chaplain wanted to do an epilogue in heaven. Oh, and, God. and Flory said, don't, don't do that. Do that. <laughs> that would have changed the entire like, yeah. context of the film. It, it would, yeah. So Flory made some very valuable contributions. <laughs> but he didn't direct the film. Didn't direct the film. Even though that I'm sure at some point in like, uh, I don't know, probably Cade Cinema or something like that back in the day, they're like, oh, you can really see, you know, that Chaplin's not the true auteur of this because film fans love to jump on that. The idea of someone really directed the film. Yeah, the and ghost director, yeah. This came up because we were listening to our favorite podcast in the world, The Movies That Made Me, the Joe Dante, Josh Olson podcast. And Joe Dante just casually drops at one point uh, while talking to Bill Hader. There's rumors that Edgar G. Elmer didn't direct Detour. And of course, you know, our, our heads explode off our I, necks. I messaged you and I was shocked you hadn't heard this before. No, and then I started Googling it and thinking, wait, wait, what, what is this? This can't be true. If Ulmer didn't direct Detour, then, <laughs> what does it mean? Then who is he? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and because they said that um, at the time on the script for Detour, it was credited to a Poverty Row director called Lou Anders. And what's interesting about Lou Anders is that he also worked in Poverty Row with Edgar G. Ulmer at the same time. But he also worked at Universal as well mm -hmm. while uh, Ulmer was making The Black Cat. And on the new Universal Horror collection that was released, Lou Anders' film um, The Raven is also included. Which is a pretty fun movie. Yeah. And it's it's The Raven is definitely Lou Anders' best remembered movie. Mm -hmm. And there's like a little bit of expressionism in that mm -hmm. film. Like it's not the Poverty Row stuff that he would later do because his later career... People don't care. He yeah. directed like 50 films. Mm -hmm. But just that hint that like, oh, but maybe it wasn't Ulmer. Supposedly the slate said Lou Anders as well. Yeah. So the script, the script that Ann Savage had said detour directed by Lou Anders. Mm -hmm. But I mean, Ann Savage was alive until recently <laughs> yeah. and, and nobody has really been claiming that Lou Anders direct. It was probably like Robert Flory with Frankenstein, basically. But I think what's interesting about that is that Detour has so much mystery around it. Like, mm -hmm. oh, I directed it in three days and it only costs, what is the... A 20 grand, something like that. And it's like, like that. that's not true. It yeah. was actually one of the longer Poverty Row shoots and it actually had a much bigger budget than them as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. But me and Will, like, we love that. We're like, well, we want to know more. Could that be true? What well, does it mean about the director's career? You sent me a screen grab from The Raven where it's an early shot where it's a sign that says Detour. <laughs> yeah. And for half second I looked at it and like wait a minute is this a trail of breadcrumbs to the truth <laughs> so that would have to indicate that while Ulmer was making the black cat the guy who maybe directed Raven Detour. a full 10 years before <laughs> yeah. Detour was made he's like he time traveled I was like <laughs> I need to lay it this is like a room 236 yeah 237 <laughs> yeah that's it yeah uh, or maybe the real room was 236 it was different in Stephen King's novel oh man but that led us down a rabbit hole of like those ghost directed projects. I mean, the most famous one is definitely Toby Hooper and Steven Spielberg on Poltergeist. Mm -hmm. And you watch that movie and you go, yeah, Steven Spielberg directed this. He wrote the script, one of his only credits as a screenwriter. Mm -hmm. He was on set every day. And like a guy who was a gaffer recently, who's a director now said, oh yes, Spielberg directed all of that. And that threw the, the cinema community in an uproar. And there are certainly films where like the real author is the producer, a lot of them. Like mm. Gone with the Wind had six or seven directors on it, but David O. Selznick is the author of the film or Return of the Jedi is obviously a George Lucas movie, even though it's directed by Richard Marquand. But you just look at like Richard Marquand and he's just like an anonymous kind of journeyman TV director. Mm. So yeah, there's a different voice behind it but it is interesting when it is like the film is so individualistic that you're like oh yeah this represents this person and to learn that it's not is like huh what well a very famous example of that is it's long been rumored that a prairie home companion was more or less ghost directed by paul thomas anderson now robert altman was sick at the time and it, it is a fact that paul thomas anderson was brought in as sort of like a, an insurance director so mm -hmm. he was there on the set every day in case robert altman couldn't fulfill his duties did he really direct any of it i mean it certainly doesn't feel like a paul thomas anderson movie. and even if he did it doesn't elevate it to some different level or give you a different context on the film well it's clearly robert altman had a particular style where he worked where it was like kind of a movie making party very mm. heavily improvisatory almost like an intangible way of directing actors Ooh, a prairie home companion um with the recent <laughs> uh, the news about Garrison Keillor? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know how it holds up after that. I liked it at the time. I did not see 
see it at the time and have not seen it since. Well, <laughs> but, you know, mostly it's films that are kind of genre outings that there's like ghost directors come in. Like, for example, uh, George P. Uh, Cosmatos. I'm probably saying that name incorrectly. Uh, that, name, that sounds familiar. What movie are you talking about? Rambo First Blood Part 2. But supposedly that also happened to him on uh, Tombstone, where Kurt Russell took over the directorial duties. Mm. And both those films are very well loved. So that's interesting only in the sense that like, oh, wow, maybe there's an- another authorial voice. Well, another very famous example is one of Clint Eastwood's best movies, Tightrope, which is credited to some hack, mm-hmm. a guy who made one other movie after that. And it's pretty much understood that Clint was running the show. One of his best movies, Tightrope? Well, what, okay, let me rephrase. One of his best <laughs> movies of the that era. Yes, okay, yeah. that makes sense. <laughs> Most of the time, it's when studios bring in a European director or just someone from a different country and then they realize, well, why did we hire this person? Like, this is not going well. We're going to have to replace him. Like, you know, my favorite movie of all time, Tango and Cash, which is not only the ultimate indication of what an 80s movie is, but has the baffling credit of Andre Konchalovsky directing it, who also co-wrote Andre Rubilov with and, Tarkovsky. And director of Runaway Train. Also. Yeah, Runaway Train, another great movie. Good film. And then when you look who supposedly directed, oh, Stuart Braid, uh, an editor on all of Richard Donner's films, you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. I'm disappointed to hear that. I love the idea of Konchalovsky directing <laughs> Tango and Cash. Set. Yeah, bigger, bigger. <laughs> but other than that, most of the time, it's like some journeyman being replaced by the studio at the last minute like you think of G.I. Joe The Rise of Cobra Stephen Summers was booted from the editing room and replaced by somebody else or uh, rumor has it Gareth Edwards on some of his recent films Um, supposedly someone who directed another Star Wars film came in and did some work on the um, Brian Cranston Godzilla no (laughs) names but when I heard it my jaw dropped and I went how what (laughs) and I mean this is common knowledge that Gareth Edwards was fired from Rogue One, but was still kept on staff in some form and just wandered the halls looking at visual effects. What you can kind of tell with Rogue One as well, that it wasn't like an auteur that came in and like fixed it. Mm-hmm. It's just, it was a screenwriter that came in and just kind of streamlined it, including adding the Donnie Yen action scene in the movie, which makes me think... What? what would the movie have been? Donnie Yen would have had nothing to do for the rest of the picture. I remember hearing a rumor. This may not even be true. So, Ooh, so juicy. folks, so Give it folks to me. don't repeat it. But basically, after they looked at the first cut, they had a meeting and they put together like a bunch of scenes from other movies just together. And oh, for like, Rogue One? Yeah. And they were like, here's we need this scene. We need this scene. We need this scene. Now do versions of these scenes. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's funny and i wish they had done a better job of that i mean i mean star wars it's all these studio pictures like phil lord and chris miller replaced by ron howard but those aren't ghost directors those are just like replacements okay uh, i have one last example and mm. it's actually an example in theater but it involves two film personalities and it's okay. a, a good story in the 1950s on the london stage Lawrence olivier and orson welles teamed up for a production of eugene ionescu's rhinoceros and olivier was starring in it welles was directing it. And for a long time, Olivier was having trouble getting into his character. But once he finally did, he started to look around and was like, wait a minute, I really don't like how Orson is doing this. So there came a point where he said, basically, Orson, go to the lighting booth and you can stay there and you can you can deal with the lighting. I'm going to direct the actors. And basically it went out like Wells was credited as the director of it, but and he was involved in the lighting, basically. <laughs> I, that's funny because those are like two really strong personalities, mm-hmm. but you can look at their future work and you know Laurence Olivier very acclaimed director of Shakespearean film adaptations mm-hmm. not held as much in high regard as Orson Welles so it, but, but also at the time who had more power Laurence Olivier yeah. so it is a believable story and Olivier also better as an actor than a director mm-hmm. so it makes sense I, I mean like Orson Welles is the king of ghost directors there hasn't been like one film he hasn't acted on where people have gone oh maybe the good parts are directed by Orson Welles I mean I'm sure you did you read that Nora Ephron piece about the making of Catch-22? No. Oh, she, she wrote one where she was like reporting on the set of it. And it was basically like, yeah, Orson Welles came in and, and every single shot, he was like, well, the way you should actually do it is like this. And Yeah. But I listened to the commentary with Steven Soderbergh and Mike Nichols and Steven asked him, he keeps like needling him about that. And Mike Nichols is like, no, 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 that's not how it happened. Orson was shooting his mouth off, but it didn't mean I had to listen to him. I was in control of the production. And I love the idea that Orson Welles had a, had a toady that was following him around. Do you know what that toady was? 
Oh, uh, Peter Bogdanovich. You know it. 